Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Reovolution podcast. Today, we kick things off with two experts in the optimization and experimentation field as we explore topics ranging from the discontinuation of Google Optimize to the up and coming idea of defensive optimization. So, without further ado, let's start with some introductions from you both as I hand it over to you. Hi, I'm Sarah Cridland. I'm the lead optimization strategist for Rio Digital. So we work with um, optimization clients with CRO and also UX research, um, analytics and design. Uh, we also have um, an SEO agency as well. And I'm Sandy. Uh, I run the product team at WebTrends Optimize. Uh, we're one of the A-B testing platforms that you may have heard of, hopefully have heard of. Um, yeah, it's been around quite a while, uh, 10 and a half years or thereabouts at the company and currently look at what we build as a product and why and what the world is up to and all these kind of things. Yeah, very happy to be sitting there with Sarah today and having a chat. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, so I suppose the first thing we should talk about is the big bombshell that came out this uh, <laughs> this month is that Google Optimize is going to be sunsetting um i think it's september isn't it Towards end of september end of yeah september so it's obviously going to have a big impact on um, all the uh, people out there who are using optimize for their testing tool the really interesting thing we've seen just just in the first week or you know it's not been very long since it's been announced is that it's kind of cut through everyone so it's not just a you know primarily free user base that they had that it's it's affected but you know most you know, large agencies out there are reconsidering what they're doing. Um, even people on the very upper end are almost taking it as an opportunity to say, vendors are doing really interesting things now. Let me actually go out and talk to people while everyone's in the spirit of, yeah, let's see what's out there and what people are doing and what might be interesting now. Um, it seems to have cut through everyone, uh, which I find quite interesting. Yeah, I suppose it's it's going to give people a jolt because, as you say, Google Optimize has got the free option available, which is great for people starting out with testing who want to get started. Um, but obviously, with Google Optimize, there are a lot of features, as they said in their announcement, that you know the bigger testing tools have, but they don't, and their customers are demanding that. So, I suppose it's a really good opportunity for um, businesses to look out there and see how they can you know, accelerate their A-B testing with a uh, a purpose-built tool. Yeah, exactly. And and Google products have always been interesting. You know, they're, they're kind of, some of them are very, let's, let's give something a stab and see where we get to. Mm. Um, the interesting thing, thing about Optimize was the user base. You know, a lot of Google Labs projects that get binned off are very small and not very, you know, popular and used by a lot of people. Um, although over the years, I think some things have been massively popular, you know, we've had things like Google Nexus phones, I think, which, you know, thousands and thousands of people went out and bought and they go, ah, we're scrapping the whole line of phones yeah. and tablets. Um, but with optimization, I think someone quoted like 200,000 accounts, you know, even at three, four, five percent of active users, you know, still a lot of people that it's affected. Um but maybe it's interesting, you know, how, how has it affected you guys at Rio, you know, here in the news? Has it made you think, were you always comfortable, you know, with or without it? Or how, how has it affected you, if at all? 
Yeah, um, and we've got a few clients that are using Google Optimize at the moment. Um, so I think for them, it's now a case of how do we transition them into another tool um, without them losing any um, time, essentially, because, you know, if it's in nine months time, it's going to be switched off. So we need to um, replace the tool so they don't see any drop in velocity of testing. So, yeah, we're very much um, looking out to see um, which tools are best fit for them going forward so they can keep testing. And also, as you say, you know, you know an opportunity for them to, to relook at what they've got um, rather than going to the default with Google Optimize. Yeah, I, li I like that as a point um, and just a general point for when people are looking at things they should be using, you know, kind of what's the right fit for you because even for us, sometimes we're guilty of this, and I know other vendors are as well, of saying, we are the right choice. Yeah. You know, well, we don't know anything about you yet, but we're still you know, pretending to be kind of an all-encompassing, amazing for everyone sort of solution, mm. and everyone always is. But you know, if, if you are looking, I guess, and for, for the people who are in that place right now, there must be a lot of them. Um, what sorts of things, I guess, would you consider uh, it might be useful to, for people to have that idea, you know, what, what sorts of things would be useful when you're looking at where to go from here? Yeah, I think one of the key factors is going to be how, ma how many visitors you have, what volume of traffic you've got going through the site, because that obviously has a big impact on uh, price, for example, fitting in with people's budgets. Um, I think also if you're looking to go into personalization as well, if that's a factor, looking at the features that the different tools hold, um, in terms of building audiences or integrating with your in-house data or your analytics tools. Um, and also looking at, you know, obviously the big um, extra features we have now is like full stack where people can build um, build using the back end of the website rather than just doing front end changes. So that obviously opens up a huge area of possibility. Um, so if that's something you're interested in doing, that's another thing to consider. Um, and I think, yeah, just um, how you want to see the data as well. The platforms vary quite a bit how they um, showcase the data. Um, um, so, yeah, I would say those, those are the main things um, yeah. to look out for. That makes sense. I think, I think there's a lot of interesting things there. You know, some of it's a, a personal preference thing, I think. You know, if, mm. if you prefer to interpret data in a certain way, yeah. It's useful to have a tool irrespective. And maybe it's a, a time and efficiency thing, I think, like you mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of not being too disruptive. Mm -hmm. You know, if you move to something which is very comfortable and natural and you understand, yeah. at least you're not spending two months going, oh, I wonder what this number means. And like, yeah. I've got to go, you know, find help or read docs or, you know, be recertified perhaps or something like that as well. Yeah. Um, that must be a consideration. I think price as well is always a, an important one yeah i think i found that's the the biggest challenge people find hard to rationalize is this idea of we've come from a tool yeah. which in my mind at least uh, has has big limitations shall i say politely yeah. um on on you know um what you can do how you do it how it chose to report on data and all these kind of things that maybe people made their peace with because it was free yeah. But go, still going from free to having to pay for anything mm. um, is a big step, I think. And that kind of decision of what's useful to you, what's comfortable to you, I guess, um, mm. being a big point there. Um, yeah, good kind of decision points. 
And yeah. I guess the big thing is, you know, try, look everywhere, find what works, especially if everything is new to you. For you guys, I guess it's a bit different because you're used yeah. to seeing a, a bit of everything. Yeah, so we work with all the major tools, so we have different clients across a range of tools. So I think we're in a unique position as an agency to actually work day-to-day with all the different tools to see how they work. So, um, yeah, but obviously in-house, like you say, it's a case of finding out what's best for you. And also the other thing I would say, is the development aspect because one of the things that really holds people back with their testing is they don't have enough resource to implement tests so a lot of the tools out there will offer ways to test things with less development resource um so you know simple tests like adding pop-ups or changing things so if if you're going to want to make a lot of changes maybe without the help of a developer then how good is the WYSIWYG editor for example or is there features built in that helps you change things um, without necessarily needing to code? So I think that's another big factor. And that's, as you say, the transition from free to paid tool. If you're going to save a lot of time with these extra features that will help you with that, then you're actually having a cost saving somewhere else. Um, yeah, which is which can justify the cost as well. Yeah, so... An interesting point, and that's something that we we think about a lot. You know, not to plug the tool, um, but this idea of you know, if if you're spending your day doing things which could take you a while, having something which can help save you an hour a day becomes yeah over the especially for an agency. You know, multiply that out by a dozen people every day of the week, and suddenly mm-hmm. it's like wow, you know, that's that's a quite useful thing. So I think yeah, tools that are comfortable, very easy to use, and get you there. Yeah faster perhaps with less people as well sounds like a a valid point probably more so for the users of google optimize compared to someone where naturally it's kind of very dev focused and you have to have a big product team of you know several tribes of people using the tool for it to really surface its value yeah yeah so at rio our development team we kind of developers build all of our tests but i know for in-house people they don't necessarily have that luxury of having a dedicated dev team it's so, rare. Yeah, yeah, very rare. And I've, so I think anything that can help with that is another good thing to consider. It's, and also to accelerate, because obviously the free version of Google Optimize has limits on how many tests you can have live at one time. So if you really want to scale your experimentation program, then removing those limits is really going to help as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think just as a, a general point, maybe to to wrap up that topic, it's you know, I think a lot of people initially, I, I, I maybe in my corner of the internet, but I found a lot of panic from people. I was yeah. like, wow, I can't believe this <laughs> is happening. We've been very reliant on the tool for such a long time and we're being forced as opposed to opting to, yeah. you know, mature into something else, you know, kind of having our, our hand forced to, to go and look elsewhere and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we perhaps both see it as a a fairly positive step in saying, actually, it was probably a good thing to to consider looking maybe a bit earlier than people were comfortable to do. Mm. Um, But there was was a lot of good stuff out there and and probably things that in the long term will be more beneficial, will save time, will get Mm. you to answers faster and all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, So hopefully to people who are watching, don't freak out, don't panic, you know, go talk to people, go do good research. Yeah. And probably just start with what what you said as well, kind of what do I need as a person, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and the and the pulling data aspects as well, because obviously that's another thing where you can be a lot more flexible with the goals you track and and the data and actually extracting the data from the tool as well. That could also save you a lot of time with some of the interfaces that tools such as Web Trends Optimize have. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's been the limitation of all Google products. Trying to get data out of yeah. GA, for example, of all data is a, a real challenge if if it's not plugged into BigQuery and you happen to be a 360 customer or something like that, it's really yeah. challenging. I spent many hours <laughs> tearing my hair out, limited hair though, maybe um, over, <laughs> over that kind of a, a thing. So yeah. Because yeah, you guys have definitely tried to do that, haven't you, at WebTrends Optimized to kind of make data more accessible and present it in a more visual way. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's an interesting thing, I think, for us. And maybe the models are, 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 or the the thinking behind the scenes is just so divergent from people like Google where, you know, they, the free, a free tool's never free. Um, and Google, you know, probably does fairly well retaining and being the hub for all the data and holding onto it as closely as they can. Mm. Whereas for us, it's like, it's not our data. Like we'll capture it, we'll process it, no problem, but it's not ours. It belongs to you. And this idea of get it back out if you need it yeah it's yours like just yeah. make it as easy as possible to get it back out and maybe the client base i think as well you mm -hmm. know it's not kind of very junior people to testing that we see so much as people who are you know fluent with tools like tableau and power bi and want you know data lakes that a lot of you know kind of large companies have and people who really want their own data because it's critical to things like reporting on lifetime value or you know maybe conversions happen off site or they get a lot of returns and they're mm -hmm. trying to rationalize the actual impact of things yeah you know it's very hard to do that in probably any testing tool unless they're very well connected and even returns come back and you can count against you know purchases or something like that it's quite tricky otherwise yeah and i think as we see experimentation becoming more a part of the overall um, process of developing the product and the website itself where it now needs to integrate with all these other aspects of the business um, it's going to become even more important that that's a seamless integration across the other platforms yeah definitely i think that's yeah kind of the topic at the minute isn't it is integrations yeah. and how well things integrate especially when people look forward to ga4 and a, a post google optimized life you know, it's kind of how well do you integrate? And that, that term, I yeah, I find it very interesting, shall we say, you know, kind of how well do you integrate? And it's like, well, what do you want? You know, again, these are questions that people really should ask themselves. It's very easy to just, you know, kind of say, do you integrate? How well are you compared to someone without mm -hmm. thinking about your own requirements and what you're, as a business or even as a person, what you really need? Yeah. You know, if it's integrating with analytics, do you just need to see experiment views in analytics? Mm -hmm. If that's all you need, like the amount of JavaScript is like a few lines of code in any platform, let alone ours, um, to get something like that basic running. Yeah. You know, whereas if the integration's like we need bi-directional connectors, so someone from my CDP, I can retarget them and you need something that in depth, then that's the sort of questions you know, people should be asking. But I think a general point, again, is, you know, work out what you need, be yeah. very clear in your own mind, yeah. you know, something like that. Yeah, and comparing the different offerings as well in order to get a sense of that, because if you've maybe not 
look for other tools yet, then maybe, yeah, go out there, see what's available, see what features are available and, and how you could see yourself using them. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think kind of moving sideways a bit to, I guess, the climate of testing over the, the past couple of years and, and looking ahead probably to the next six months or year as well. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of companies uh, feel the squeeze on both sides. You know, yeah. there was kind of COVID was a, a very lockdown time of don't do anything crazy. We yeah. need to make sure we protect ourselves as a business and, you know, big recession. We're, we're basically in, but looming officially, shall we say. Um, so thinking about how people navigate this and what sorts of things they should probably focus on when the business is very maybe aware of what they're doing and there is an impact you could have, you know, what sorts of things do you find people would benefit from focusing on, you know, uh, kind of to help themselves in the last couple of years, but definitely over the next six months? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the key point is um, you mentioned the overall business metrics, like obviously trying to drive revenue and sales. So I think um, a lot of the time with people starting out in, tempt um, in testing, it's tempting to kind of go for the smaller things um, and tweaks to the minor, minor parts of the UX. So what we do when we start with a new client is to kind of look at the bigger picture first in terms of which pages on your site are driving the revenue, driving the most orders and revenue. Um, because obviously you could have a great winning test, but if it's on a minor page like the um, you know some obscure page on the site it's not going to have much impact on the bottom line no. so in this climate like you say where it's first first off it was don't rock the boat but now it's like you need to show the value of your CRO program so um, yeah focusing really where where the customers are and where the revenue is coming from so for example on a retail site the product detail page is mostly where most of the visitors are and it has a huge influence on the user's decision to purchase or not and it's got high traffic value so that's a really key page and then optimizing the checkout as well um, where the users can't order unless they go through that flow yeah so it's the key point so the first part is where and then when you've narrowed down on the page it's like what are the elements of the page that's having the biggest influence on the user's decision to purchase or not what what are they thinking about what do they want to see is there anything missing so i think looking at those things and really trying to hone in on where you're going to have the biggest impact on the bottom line because if you prove the value of a cro program then you can scale it up higher as well so going for that that to start with to show the value um before you get into more of the nitty-gritty um aspects of it i would say yeah that that makes sense I think you know this idea of I guess starting off with a data-led approach sounds like where where you start your thought process yeah. you know what where are the um, kind of numbers you can spot to say this page has value uh, this journey is important to us mm -hmm. drop-offs are terrible here yeah. you know that kind of thing but then it seems like you're blending into research and kind of saying right if we understand there is a problem here what is the problem here yeah um so when you look at that kind of research i guess what sorts of studies you know do you guys find good success with uh what sort of approaches do you take to to understand this element or this you know 
I, th I think you mentioned like what do, what's the user struggling with yeah you know how, how do you go about working that out yeah so I think as you say to start off with a simple funnel and that let's say the, take the checkout for example a simple funnel analysis just to see well where's the biggest point of drop-off yeah. and then um, also utilizing things like um, heat maps if you've got them to see well our users even reaching it to the bottom of the page is there some place where they're stopping um, and if it's a form, for example, you know, some heat maps can be very granular. It's like, you know, exactly where they're dropping out. Um, so trying to pinpoint where, but obviously the data is only going to give you so much. It's like if you, you can review it yourself as a customer. One of the things I like to do with a new client straight away is before I've got too much context on what the business is about is to just go and look at it myself as a customer mm. and see what is my initial gut reactions because often that will be reflected if you then do say user research further down the line um so i think yeah starting off with the data looking see what stands out to you and then obviously your opinion alone is not enough you want yep. to hear from the users of the site itself so when we start out we also conduct some user research where we ask um, maybe six participants to go through the um, the website and, you know, just with a very broad focus of just like pick something to buy and go through the checkout flow, say, and just seeing what they come up against. Because often, especially if it's a specialist kind of product, um, you, if you're not the typical customer of that product, there's going to be a whole range of issues that they come up against that you're not even aware of because you don't shop for that thing personally. So I think the value of doing some user research up front, just a very broad focus, just to try and get some feedback, it can unearth things that are, you know, you would never have thought of by yourself. And the data's never going to tell you that. You need to actually go out and speak to your users. So I think that's really valuable. Yeah, definitely. Two Two very interesting points there as well. You know, one is kind of, are people even seeing the thing you decide is important? You know, we had this with um, a recommendations carousel recently that we're experimenting with. Mm -hmm. It was on a PDP, you know, really high-end products, you know, very long PDP full of images that do a great job of selling the product, but that naturally meant the carousel was very low down the page. And if you're thinking about new algorithms or new way of recommending products, natural first question is that, well, is anyone even seeing it? Yeah. Because if they're not seeing it, you spending two weeks, three, four weeks, you know, thinking new algorithms and rules, designing, getting something in place just to realize 100 people a month see it, you know, becomes an incredible waste mm. of time, really. Um, so I think having a good way to, to gauge, you know, in, in the experimentation lingo, kind of gauge your sample size almost. Yeah. Um, is a really, really good first step. You know, making sure you understand there is a problem here. And if I fix it, we could have saved mm -hmm. X people and this much, you know, leak of conversion. Um, I think that's that's a really good first step. And the other thing you mentioned, which is very interesting, is like a lot of people I find are, are kind of tunnel blinded when they work for a company and they've been there for a while and yeah. you're staring at the website all day long. And, and you, you never kind of pull yourself out of that bubble, the company bubble, and say, today I'm just going to be average customer, um, put myself in their shoes, and, and try and work out what they could struggle with, why they might be here, you know, really embedding yourself in their mindset. 
and I think getting good uh, good participants, you know, as as much as I I, I could try you know, me optimizing the site that sells dresses mm-hmm. is not going to get us very far. You know, there's there's a lot of things I just would have no idea, wouldn't pick up on, wouldn't think about Yeah, uh, pairing products together. It just, you know, my mind is not wired. My fashion <laughs> sense is not good enough um, to, to get anywhere near the sort of thing that regular customers of websites yeah. like that would be embedding themselves in the mindset of. So, yeah, it must be really good success, I guess. When you have people in scribbling away ideas of all these things, you naturally perhaps wouldn't pick up on something like that. Yeah, it's great. And also, I think, like you said, if you've been at the company a long time, you're going to be using jargon that is specific to that industry, say. So one of the things we saw in a user testing example was um, for an insurance um, client, where when you're picking the use of your car when you're buying car insurance, and it was SD&P. Ah, uh, do you know what? Yeah, social domestic complaint. It's a very old, yeah. old-timey way of describing what you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so some people who've obviously bought insurance for years know what that means or can work it out. But if someone's new to insurance, say, or or can't quite remember, you know, they'll be, I, you know, I'm confused now. I don't know what to do. And that's the point where they're going to abandon the form because they don't know how to answer the question. But to an insurance industry insider, they might not even pick up on that because they see that term used every day and to them it's now second nature. So it's things like that, like are you assuming the user knows your industry inside out or are you really trying to communicate in a very simple way where anyone could pick this up? Yeah, that's a a really interesting point and something I see with user research where people do it wrong is kind of, selection bias almost you know if you pick people who've you know 30 40 50 years old have had car insurance for the last you know several decades they're not going to struggle to answer questions but if you're trying to acquire new customers who are the majority of new customers you know i've been with the same car insurance company since i was 18 to my detriment perhaps i'm not very good at (laughs) Uh, going on the old comparison sites but you know if I, I imagine the majority of these you know new acquisitions are from people who've just passed yeah. the test and they're looking yeah and if you don't select user uh, user testing participants who are new and kind of fresh to the world of insurance then perhaps you don't pick up on these kind of things so selection <laughs> yeah. must be quite important for you as well yeah yeah definitely so um so a, a range of participants that maybe some that are familiar with the brand, some not so much. So then you'll get, um, we see this with, you know, retail sites that have a lot of repeat buyers where the website's um, almost tailored to them. Um, but then they have a real problem attracting new customers because it maybe doesn't necessarily attract a new audience. So it's getting that balance of not changing the site too much so that you alienate all the loyal customers but still try and attract a new audience and how does it work for both? I think that's where personalization can come in as well, is to make sure you're servicing both audiences correctly. We've seen that done uh, very, very poorly and painfully in the past as well, this idea of alienating existing customers. You know, yeah. worked with a, a rail company a few years back and they did a massive redesign, very artsy, cartoony vibe to the site where before it was very kind of plain and and bland and returning customers 
could not find what they were looking for because yeah. the button that they click every morning to get the tickets just wasn't there. Yeah. And it was it would have cost them like a million pounds a quarter or thereabouts. It, w- it would have been terrible. I think it just shows this idea of, you know, test and yeah. analyze well, you know, not just yeah. overall my test is good or bad or, it, <laughs> it, you know, bought in money. But actually, am I hurting existing users? You know, yeah. people coming from somewhere, people looking for something. The more analysis you can do, I guess, the more you really understand the impact of what you're doing and if it's the right thing to do or not. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why you should always segment the test results as well for, you know, and especially if you've got a strong core customer base on the site to to segment your test results by new and returning visitors because sometimes we find, you know, you might get an inconclusive test, but when you drill down, you see that new users loved it, returning users hated it, and between the two of them, they've evened out into a, yeah. So there's a huge insight there that if you didn't segment, you would miss. You would just think, oh, it, it was inconclusive. But actually, you've maybe struck something that actually this really works for new users or returning users, say. Yeah, definitely. And I've you know spoken about it in the past recently, but I think this idea of uh, a static one-size-fits-all website mm. is, is, is going away yeah. very quickly. You know, I, I can't think of any real industry where having a single page would suffice for every single type of person visiting every intention they have or motivation they have for turning up yeah um i think personalization and and hyper personalization at that is probably going to be where everyone ends up yeah yeah technology willing Yeah. yeah i think it's um it's very much this shift also to treating the website as though it's an email list Mm. So where email newsletters already kind of are very aware of segmenting their users and sending the right message at the right time. And I think we're now in a transition where we're starting to see websites in the same way and apps, for example, where are you sending the right message at the right time and tailoring it to where the user is in their journey? Um, So I think, yeah, that's going to become more and more of a thing and retaining users, keeping them coming back, keeping something fresh as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I guess, for the larger websites, having covered the the kind of people breaking into testing, that's probably one of the things that are very important to them is this kind of very personalized, user-driven approach. But is there anything else you can see that you feel, you know, larger websites are tending towards thinking about a lot more what they could benefit from nowadays, especially in the climate of, you know, budgets probably being squeezed. A lot of tech companies were seeing a lot of layoffs at the minute as well. So it's a kind of very critical time, even for the bigger companies as well as smaller ones. Yeah, I think um, I think talking about the the personalization element is, I think a lot of people um, think everybody's doing it, but people a lot of people aren't even off the starting blocks yet. No, with it, it's it's a lot less mature than people think. So I think just starting with the basics, like the one example I really like from ASOS where, the, you know, the, the homepage is just, if you're new, it's tailored to say, oh, you're new here. This is how it works. This is the returns. This is how you, um, the delivery options, the payment options. Do you want to shop women or men? So it's very simple introduction to the company. Whereas if you're, if they already know whether you're a woman or a man, they'll redirect you to the right category. So that's just a really simple example of how how you can start to think about where the user's at and, and how they want to interact with the site. 
Um, so I think, yeah, just looking at, if you haven't already started that kind of thing, just looking at how can we introduce some element of this in a very simple way and, and attracting the biggest audiences to segment by as well, such as new versus returning before we go down the route of the hyper-personalised one-to-one personalization magic one-to-one dream um yeah it's just to start with that and just start thinking through those scenarios as well like who are my users what stage are they at where are they in their buying journey have they they've been browsing for a few days now or are they here for the first time because obviously the information they want to see at that point is going to be different if you're on a product details page say and you haven't yet decided what to buy. You're very much interested in the product features and the images to make a decision. But then if you've now made the decision to buy, you now want to know, well, how long am I going to take to get here? Can I return it? So the information you want to see at different stages is different. So I think trying to tap into that as well. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense as a, you know, aspirational things, I guess, or, or, or... Not, not even super aspirational, but things people should be looking forward to. Yeah. Um, I think the other interesting thing for large businesses, which I'm seeing some of, but, you know, it's probably a lot more relevant nowadays, is this idea of kind of defensive optimization. You know, this idea of protecting yourself from yourself almost. Yeah. You know, all these crazy things or, you know, some amazing designers come along and say, look at this, it's amazing. But, you know, what what can you do to to validate and make sure you don't make a terrible choice, I guess. Are you seeing much of that on the, the upper end of things as well? Yeah, I think, um, as you say, I think as, as businesses get have experimentation more embedded into their processes, they're more aware of when you make a change to the site, it's going to have an impact on user behaviour. So even if you think it's the best thing ever to roll out, you don't know. It's, again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier, is that your opinion is that this is a brilliant change but you don't know that your users are going to agree with you. So you could roll something out that, that could potentially really lower your conversion rate. And you're only going to realize that once it's rolled out and you see a massive drop and then, you know, the analysts then go into a panic like, why is the, why is the conversion rate dropped? So, so I think this is a really good uh, way of, you know, using things like uh, the, the full stack uh, server-side testing um, if it's a big change or if, even if it's just a minor change, like, uh, you know, for example, changing a, a piece of copy or a headline or a, a CTA button or something, um, you know, just to test it first to see what impact does this have? Because if you do see a massive drop, you've now saved your company a lot of pain by figuring out up front that users aren't going to like it. And then you can also from there try to understand why. And then it's a huge insight into user behavior. Um, but we do see examples where companies are kind of designing, putting a lot of effort up front into designing new features or new pages and then finding out after the fact that they don't work, where really if you bed testing earlier on, you could get some of these insights up front, you know, get a quick prototype up and running, see if this design works or if it resonates or not. And then get some feedback as you go along and then tweak and adapt it as you go. So I think in that way you'll get a much better outcome than kind of just going with something all in and then rolling it out and finding out that it, it doesn't work or not finding out at all, you know, and never knowing what it was that caused your conversion rate to tank. 
yeah, definitely. And I think that idea, you know, just that you say of saving yourself some some pain in the long term. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, I find it quite interesting because if anybody were honest about their success rate, you know, for the the successful tests they run, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's far from a hundred percent for for anyone uh, that I've spoken to. Um, but yet, when you're rolling out changes to a website, the inclination is to say, "Oh, let's just put it out there. It's fine." Yeah. And then we'll we'll test afterwards, or we'll analyze and measure afterwards. But you know, if even if the planned and well-researched things aren't always successful the very first time you try something, the likelihood of any feature that you've been building being successful naturally, you know, it's it's, it's never going to be there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely very important, I think, to test first, to do good research. Yeah. Um, tools like user testing as well, you know, mm-hmm. this idea, as you said, with the design phase, Yeah. you know, doing five-second tests or just one-liner, you know, how do you do this? Where would you click? And just making sure yeah. there's not a fundamental flaw, I think, in the, the designs people are doing. Yeah, definitely and, important. and that's the way um, user research can be used as well. Not necessarily users going through your site as it is now, but maybe um, going through a prototype version of your new design or your new feature and getting some feedback up front and some real qualitative insights out of it um, to see, do they like it or not? And maybe getting users to compare and give you their opinions one to the other. So that's another good application of user research, how you can really help inform your design changes. Are you seeing this from your side, from the testing tool side of things, that this is something that's happening more and more? Yeah, definitely. I think the the quality of ideas we're seeing now, especially from established companies, um, you know, everyone has a journey, we found. You know, anyone starting will start somewhere and it won't be overly invested in research it will be i'm dipping a toe in Mm -hmm. trying to make sense of my ga data and doing a bit of testing to see if i can make it better but on the on the other side of the scale um you know kind of saying the cost i I think it's the cost of testing you know the the cost of making mistakes you know nothing is cheap or for free um even if you're testing the color of a button or, you know, the most simplest change you can make, maybe the copy in a, a heading or something, you know, making the change may only take you 10 minutes. Analyzing the data afterwards will take you a few hours. Mm-hmm. You know, the cost of any change is is quite high. And I think we're finding more and more at the minute on that end of the scale that good research, you know, just means you miss less. Traffic is only ever as much as you have. You know, you can't invent traffic just to test a bit more or run a few more ideas if you make mistakes. And that mm-hmm. idea of, you know, trying to be as successful as you can with the people that you have coming to the site um, seems to be growing a lot more, you yeah. know, so get it right yeah. the first time. Or, or at least base your ideas on solid enough research that you hope to be right, yeah. you know. Yeah. For, for larger companies, I guess the the... The last big thing I've seen, you know, as as a transitionary step, a lot of people are taking, but one, at least maybe me being a bit biased in my background, being a dev and, and coming from that world, is the need for developers, you know, as, as you grow and scale testing and, and try to do more and achieve more, it almost feels not optional. You know, you must see it yourselves from being, you know, kind of a, a well-known agency with strong devs 
you know, um, embedded in what you do, as you mentioned earlier, they, they build all of your tests for you. Yeah. You must see the need for that versus what some clients might try and get away with yeah. without any dev support. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of companies come to us where they're, you know, they've started out with their CRO program, but they're very much hindered by the fact that they don't have the dev resource there to support them. So they're kind of, you know, doing what they can within the WYSIWYG and, you know, trying to come up with tests as best they can. But obviously, if you want to, like you say, at the transition to more complex tests, then you really need some expertise to help with that. And also the QA side of things as well. So we have a very robust QA process. And and that's another thing. If you're trying to kind of hash up tests yourself or maybe you're not come from the developer background, there's a danger that if there's no robust QA process in place as well, is that you could cause a bug somewhere else that you're not aware of and have a knock-on effect. So so I think, yeah, and and also developers that are experienced in A-B testing as well, because it's like there's a lot to that as well, rather than just building the experiences, knowing how to set up the metrics and set up the test within the tool, target the audiences. I think there's a whole skill in that too. On They're top a special of, breed of they are, yeah. developers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think especially if you're working with a developer that becomes you know, working alongside your site pretty closely, they start to learn all the quirks and um, scenarios that come up on the website. So another thing we try to do is map out all the scenarios that a user's going to that happen on a page so that we can make sure we've accounted for that in our variation to make sure, well, actually, there's two versions of this page depending on what the user does. So if we don't account for that or exclude it, then that could cause issues. So... So I think, yeah, having really good developers and, and really good QA resource as well, um, I think, yeah, you definitely need development support to, to scale and, and really push things forward. Yeah, and wh whether it's in-house, which, you know, has some real benefits for companies or whether, you know, your first hire, you might not need a dev full-time, for example, and so finding um, agencies like Rio where you can say, right, we're going to be running the odd test here you know, now and yeah. again, um, let's get a dev to, you know, build a couple of tests a month for us, mm -hmm. as opposed to go and build a dozen and spend your entire day doing it. Um, whichever way or however you, you manage to enter that realm, um, I think without doubt, the most successful companies I've seen testing are ones who have strong developers around them who can build these type of tests, who can, yeah. as you say, like track data well, who do good QA. Good QA is one of those things on my mind where it's like, you know, you, you release a test if you haven't tested it well enough. Yeah. You'll think your idea was terrible. Yeah. And and that's a that's an awful thing to do to a program. Yeah. Because the amount of conclusions you'll draw from a bad test where you go, well, this doesn't respond well and people hate it. And now oh, you just didn't test the button and you broke something. Yeah, yeah. You didn't know what knock on effects you'd had. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think just as general points maybe to, to wrap up today, um, you know, a few that I've seen and, and that we've spoken about for sure. You know, don't don't be terrified by Google optimizing the news um, yeah, that yeah. we've seen. I find it hugely inspirational. It's transformed what we've done as a company, but, you know, in a way where the response I've seen from people has been very positive, you know, very 
open, very forward thinking. And, and I think everyone should take the news in that vein of it's an opportunity to see what else is out there and do more and try. Uh, you have no choice, so you will have to. <laughs> but, you know, try to approach it with positivity, I guess, if you can. And then, you know, test well, have good people around you. Research, I guess, is yeah, one of the strongest yeah. things you mentioned. Research, yeah, look at the bigger picture with the data, uh, you know, work out where is the best place to focus. And, yeah, find out, talk to your users, find out what they're doing, what they're thinking. Um, yeah, there's a wealth of insights there if you, if you do the research. Absolutely, put the work in. Yeah, nothing, nothing exactly, comes easy, yeah. but I think when you put the work in, yeah, you see things that, yeah. Yeah. Really would stop you in your tracks. We go, oh, of course, of course, yeah. we're missing this. And yeah. I just didn't realize because we've been staring at the same website for four years and it <laughs> hadn't changed. Yeah. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Let me just say a massive thank you to you both. I feel like I've learned a thing or two today. We hope to have you both back again here soon. So thank you. Pleasure, as always. Talking. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for coming down, Sandy. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. No worries. Thank you.